welcome to More Christ. This is a channel dedicated to Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox alike. Today I'm joined by Calvin Robinson. Calvin is a teacher, a writer, a political commentator, and perhaps more important yet, an ordinant. He has written for several publications, including but not limited to The Telegraph, The Daily Mail, and The Times Educational Supplement. Calvin has recently appeared on Good Morning Britain, triggering Pierce Morgan and is a campaign champion to defund the BBC. I'd like to begin by asking you about your recent appearance then, Calvin, on uh, Good Morning Britain. Where hmm. You were pretty shamefully treated, it must be said. Um, we see how these supposedly tolerant TV hosts would barely even let you make your pints and attack you unjustly just for thinking differently. This seems to be something that was then echoed on Twitter, unsurprisingly, but lamentably. Um, what does this have to say about the standard of the political dialogue that we see in Britain, especially when it comes to these more hot-button issues? Firstly, thanks for having me on, Mark. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Um, mainstream TV, what can I say? I mean, it's a performance, isn't it? I, I don't think it's about the debate anymore. It's about the entertainment factor. And Piers Morgan, all due respect to him, you know, he, he does his job. He gets on there, he has a good rant. He gets a load of spin for the show, gets more viewers. It works. Um, whether he wants to hear other people's opinions or not is a different uh, debate altogether. You know, I don't think I was invited on there to have my voice heard. I think I was on, invited on there to be lectured and shouted at him uh, so that he can perform some kind of uh, entertainment factor for his viewership, which is fair enough. You know, you know that going into it and I, you know, I took a gamble going on. I thought maybe I'll get a few points across. I think I did. Um, so it, it all went okay. What I wasn't expecting was the backlash afterwards. You know, um, tens of thousands of people um, were essentially racially abusing me for, you know, for not having their opinion, for not sharing their opinion. I wasn't expecting that at all. That was very outrageous. I think, um, you know, I'm used to the news not reporting anymore. I'm used to th these kind of programs trying to shape the news and create it, but I wasn't expecting to be the news myself um, just by going on. Uh, yeah, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting week. Um, I, I'm, I'm sick of talking about the negative side of it. So I'll talk about the positive in that I've had a lot of people um, reach out to me, you know, through Twitter and Facebook and Instagram um, to say thank you for speaking up, thank you for speaking common sense, uh, normal British values and all of this stuff. But I've had people stop me in the street. Like, obviously, I'm, I'm not very high profile or anything, but it was quite it was quite a high profile debate. And so people, a few people have recognized me. Someone actually pulled up in their car to shake my hand and say thank you. He, he said, um, I'm not a racist. This is not a racist country. And I'm sick and tired of people telling us that it is and people telling me that I'm a bad person just for being white. Uh, and, you know, to get people coming out of the way to say that just goes to show like how sick and tired people are of being lectured at and having this woke progressive narrative shoved down their throats at all times. You know, we're no longer celebrating the good things in our society. We're focusing on all the negative aspects all of the time. And it's, that's not a good way to live. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Calvin. Uh, unfortunately, I, I completely agree with you. I think what you show and what others have shown has been the pernicious role that uh, critical theory, aka neo-Marxism, if we could parse those terms out if we want, but generally speaking, it, the adverse effect it's had on society, something that you've written about and you've spoken about before. How should uh, Christians specifically, because uh, this is obviously a Christian podcast primarily, how should we respond when we're ritually fed these, what I would say, are unbiblical categories um, via the mainstream media? So even from our experience in schools, we see this as well dividing the world into the so-called oppressor and the oppressed classes now according to skin color, which seems to be a new version of the old Marxist class consciousness and say now we've got race consciousness. Have you seen this playing out in schools and 
what sort of form has it taken? Yeah, I think schools have jumped in the deep end. They've been wanting to be seen to be doing something about Black Lives Matter because it's such a prevalent movement. And they thought, we can't just leave it. We have to address it. Unfortunately, the way they've addressed it is by just adapting CRT into the lessons. And for people that aren't aware, you know, critical race theory is this theory that white people are privileged and black people are kind of oppressed uh, by default. Um, and it's kind of this victimhood mentality. And, I, you know, I think that... I've, I've seen this in a, a lot of schools, not just because of Black Lives Matter, but there's this whole methodology of, okay, so these kids are from a disadvantaged background, so they're going to need special attention. Let's not expect them to hand in their homework because, you know, they've really got one parent at home or they're from an ethnic minority that, you know, they have a different culture or, or whatever. Excuses, basically, is what I'm talking about. Yeah. And this is the bigotry of low expectations. And what we find is, you know, I know you've spoken to Catherine Burblesing. I'm a, a governor at her school and I work with a few schools in London that, you know, when you actually treat kids with respect and set high standards for them, they will rise to meet those standards. They want to be held to high expectations. They want, and they thrive in an environment like that. And that's for all kids. So we shouldn't be making excuses or ex exemptions based on anything, but race in particular, I think is very dodgy. Mm. Um, so to combat that, I've been a part of a movement, movement called Don't Divide Us with Claire Fox, which is fantastic because we're putting out positive alternatives. So we're saying, you know, let's focus on the things that unite us rather than the things that, that divide us. Uh, likewise, I know Mark Lahane has got his campaign for common sense. I've done a little work with him on those things as well. It's just about engaging. It's about having an alternative message. And if you want to hear that, you know, what do we say as Christians, I think we need to get back to encouraging people to disagree well. And I think a lot of this comes down to cancel culture, because at the moment, if you have an opinion that is descending to the popular opinion, you're cancelled. You know, you, people will shout over you, they will shut you down, they'll no platform you. And we need to remind people that actually, you can't shut people down for their faith or their beliefs or whatever they say. What you've got to do is look at them for the content of the character, not their colour of their skin, as in, you know, the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But also... I think forgiveness has to come back into it somewhere. We've got to teach people to forgive again. That's the core message that I, I would give to anyone in that, you know, we look at people's tweets from five, six, seven, eight years ago and think, oh, they're an awful person. How could they ever have thought that? And we never stop to think, actually, you know, maybe they were having a bad day or maybe their opinion has changed since then or whatever, but just forgive people and move on. Uh, we can't remain stuck in the past forever. We can't judge people historically from the past by today's moral standards either we tend to do that a lot you know we're pulling down statues this was an evil guy whether that guy you know set up hospices and and funded the poor and whatever if they did one thing wrong in their past judging by today's standards they are an evil person and we're redefining what good versus evil means and i think a lot of this comes from lack of biblical knowledge i don't think people read the bible anymore i don't think they care about the bible so they're making up their own moral codes Mm -hmm. but I think if you look at where we are in secular society, these groups like Black Lives Matter and like Extinction Rebellion, they are cults. You know, they get people following them so religiously, especially Extinction Rebellion. They've got vestments and they've got pretty much sacrifices <laughs> and all kinds of nonsense going on. But it's people are yearning. People are looking for God. They're looking for faith and they don't know where to go in this, in this hyper secularized society where it's unfashionable to be religious. Um, so they're latching onto whatever they see and whatever popular movement comes along. And that, that's very damaging because these moral codes that these groups are making up are not actually moral. They're, you know, they're, they lack morality because they are 
man-made they are made up and they're not they're not coming from the laws that we're, we're supposed to be following so i think that i hope that answers the question of, of where a christian should look in this in look back to the bible and look towards forgiveness mm -hmm. excellent i think to uh, dovetailing with your point uh, we see also when you when you look at the the historian tom holland for example he mm. talks about how certain elements of christianity have been taken and we're running away with them but we're not looking at looking at it within the, the greater context of christianity where those virtues are balanced out by other virtues so i guess this emphasis on social justice is kind of a perversion of our christian justice i guess thomas Sowell's cosmic justice but as you said there is no forgiveness there's no emphasis on mercy which is also in the Bible, and it's usually paired those two together whenever whenever we do see them in the Bible. And okay. um, it's interesting and ironic, I think, anyway, that Douglas Murray seems to be the one as an atheist that's pushing the emphasis in, on forgiveness it, more so than a lot of our Christians, unfortunately, who seem to have become beholden to the mob. But um, I don't know what you think about that. Absolutely. Um, I think it comes from a place of division, but. They mean well, these people. So these these hard left groups, you know, these social Marxists, they think they're doing something good and they they, they see racial inequality and they want to address it. Rightly so. I think we all see that, you know, racism is still a bit of an issue in this country. This is not a perfect country, although I think we've come a long way and made a lot of progress and we need to celebrate that too. But they want to address racial inequalities and their way of doing that is looking at everything through a racial lens. And that is what stokes racial tension in the, uh, where it doesn't be exist to begin with. You know, if you look at everything at uh, a case of oppressor versus victim, you're separating people into white and non-white. And, you know, we, I think, again, we need to look back to scripture. You know, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And, and all of these messages that, that, you know, God's people are one human race and try to bring us back. Even if you don't want to accept they're all one human race, at least, you know, be united in our Britishness. Um, a wider community that we all belong to and stop trying to segregate us into subgroups. And I think identity politics comes into it quite a lot. A lot of this comes down to what is called blackness and whiteness. And I don't understand what they mean. You know, I, <laughs> I, I see this in the church. I'm sure you'll get to this later, but I just think that, you know, we should put our Britishness first or even before that, put our faith first. You know, first and foremost, I'm a Christian, I'm British. I also happen to be mixed race or black or whatever you want to call me. That doesn't really, that's not the core of my identity. And I don't think it should be. Marvellous. Thank you, Kevin. And then whenever it comes to legislation, more specifically, it seems to be turning against us, I would say. For example, um, whenever Christians have been forced to use certain pronouns, for example, I remember one case in Oxfordshire, or whenever young children are now told, as you say, that they must repent of this original sin of whiteness, for example. And, it's kind of disturbing for me and as you suggest it seems to be something pushed by the mainstream media who have an incentive i guess to uh, sensationalize and exaggerate and so forth and um i think this also meets with your your defund the bbc initiative so i was wondering too what role the bbc has played in all of this and um, why have you spoken out so forcefully against them more generally yeah i think for me it's their wokeness it's their the BBC is always chasing the metropolitan liberal elite. It's always chasing that London bubble. It wants to be seen as cool and relevant. And they're forgetting their core audience, which are the over 60s. And, you know, the, we've seen last year, the only two 
channels that grew were BBC News and BBC Parliament, which shows you the core demographic is just sensible, normal folk. Mm -hmm. And when they try to be overly woke, like with BBC Three, it gets shut down because no one watches it. Mm -hmm. and, and there is a youth audience. There is that really woke audience, but they're on YouTube and Netflix. They're watching cuties and, uh, you know, <laughs> sexualizing young girls and all this um, degenerative nonsense. Uh, but... I think the BBC's lost its way. It used to be a public service. It used to be a public broadcaster. It used to focus on inform, educate, and entertain. And I, at the moment, it just focuses on entertainment. They've lost their way. But you mentioned legislation as well. And we're seeing, you know, obviously our work in schools, we're seeing re relationship, health, and sex education being pushed intensely at the moment. I don't know where this agenda's come from. And it's very, I mean, we have a conservative government. For them to be forcing legislation through to say, A, that schools need to teach this, but also that parents no longer get a choice in a lot of this, that is very worrying to me because education, well, everything to do with our children comes down to parental responsibility first and foremost. The family is at the forefront of our society. And the moment we try and replace family with the state, then I get very concerned. That's totalitarian and it's very statist and it's, it's not where we need to be going. But We've had sex education in secondary schools for a long time. So why are we introducing it into primary now? And, you know, they start off by saying it's just relationship and health in primary, but then they, it gets pushed further and further down. And we are seeing resources being pushed to primary schools to teach sex education. We're teaching nine-year-olds how to masturbate. We're teaching younger kids than that, that they might be able to choose their gender uh, and that they might be in the wrong bodies. You know, when, when kids are vulnerable and going through different stages of you know being a tomboy or whatever um we're teaching them really dangerous uh, queer theory gender theory it's highly inappropriate you know i've got i've got no problem with a, a grown person an adult choosing to call themselves whatever they want and live their lives however they want that's up to them i'm quite liberal in that in that sense but i don't think we should be pushing these ideologies these dangerous ideologies onto children when you know they're still forming their opinions and they don't know what is right and what's wrong uh, they don't know anything about uh, their bodies or their sexuality or any of this um, is we shouldn't be encouraging it and we should definitely not have any outside agencies in our schools you know stonewall and mermaids are two particularly dangerous entities that are really on this and really pushing this um, i think what we can do as christians or as parents in general and, and people members of society is address this and say okay what is our school teaching our kids? Find out what materials are they using? What agencies are they having come in to deliver uh, content? You know, there are a few groups out there. A friend of mine set up one called parentpower.family. Um, there are parental groups, so you don't have to be on your own. You can join a union or whatever to have support. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable challenging the headmaster or the school or the governors, but definitely find out what your kids' schools are doing and how they're teaching it because it is scary times that, you know, as a teacher, I've seen some really ridiculous resources that I wouldn't want to see any, any school. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I think um, part of the problem for, for Christians is the way it's sold. Again, it's that kind of language of virtue or autonomy and um, as if this is a wonderful thing. For example, the Black Lives Matter about section on their website, which has now been taken down, I understand, because people were going to it and saying, this, look, this is what they believe, so now I believe they're taken down, where they had say, uh, talked about the village raising the child, which I assume they mean the state, given the mm -hmm. fact that they uh, claim themselves that they're Marxists, this village talk to try and uh, bring people onto their side and think, oh, how wonderful, we're going to have a greater community. And uh, I think Christians get taken in by that sort of rhetoric, unfortunately. I've seen uh, different 
uh, Christians who are more focused on social justice issues fallen precisely for that trap. Yeah. So uh, I could, I would just love to recommend that they, they think again and think about justice in a much more biblical context than that. And I think too with cuties, um, Rod Dreher has written some excellent stuff about how it was sold as this emancipatory um, artistic piece. But the way it's kind of ironic, the way to um, complain about hypersexuality is to use hypersexuality to make your point. And it's like um, he calls it a moral failure, which I think is a good Christian reading of the, the whole cuties thing. Um, just to move the emphasis then to a bit more of your own story. Can you tell us a bit about your background and some of the key events and movements in your own life that have had far in the month you are now then? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So at the moment I'm, I'm starting my, uh, I'm going to enter seminary soon. I'm going to be training towards holy orders as an ordinand. Um, that is a quite a change of pace. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been teaching for the last um, six years. I got into teaching after about seven years in industry. So I was in technology. I was in, you know, we made mobile apps and websites, uh, that kind of thing. I worked in video games for a while. All very, very fun. Um, very materialistic, very uh, superficial, but very fun for someone in the you know, late teens, early 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually I kind of got nudged into education. Um, I think it was all part of me kind of exploring my faith, but also looking to well, exploring my life really and kind of wanting something more and wanting to feel fulfilled and well, wanting to escape this superficial life really and, and looking to fill that gap. And I found that in my sector, in the industry that I worked in, there was a, there was a gap there, a digital divide in that we, uh, all of our companies, not just ours, but all the companies in the sector outsourced all of their work to Eastern Asia and Eastern Europe as well. I figured, well, where's all the British talent? Where's all the homegrown talent? And, you know, we'd have people coming to us with amazing CVs, but no skills, no knowledge. And I figured, okay, there's something going wrong in the way that we're teaching computing. And this was at the time that Michael Gove brought in a new initiative for computer science. I looked at this, I thought this is fantastic. I, I don't know if I was naive or if I was arrogant, but I thought I can make a difference in this area. I can, you know, teach these kids these skills and give them the knowledge that they need to enter industry. And we can have some homegrown talent, so it would be amazing. So I did some teacher training on the job, jumped in the deep end, went into inner city schools, Ooh, that was a that was a wake up call. I will tell you that, um, as you all very well know, <laughs> it just it it gave me something different. I it opened my eyes. You know that that spark when you ignite, uh, you know the inspiration in a pupil and you see them get it and you see, you see them encouraged and, and getting that yearning for knowledge. Nothing else beats that. It's an amazing feeling. But there's a in this country we've done really well, especially since Michael Gove was the education secretary. Since that period, we've done so well on academic excellence. You know, our kids are getting better and better grades. More of them are going to university, etc. It's all great. But as I've spent these years in teaching, and I've, as I've been continuing to search um, on my faith journey and discerning on what my calling is, I realise that there's more of a gap there. And it's not just the teaching of computing that I, I need to do or pass on my skills and knowledge in that area. It's just that while we're focusing on all this academic stuff, we're leaving the character behind. And I'm sending kids out into the world with fantastic grades, but are they good contributors to society? Are they good citizens? And are they good Christians? And that's the key. I don't think a lot of the time they are. You know, I, I do a lot of consulting for schools in London, I support school leaders. Uh, and when I go to different schools, kids won't hold the door open for me as an adult. Uh, I walk in the rooms, they don't stand up. Uh, there are no basic manners there. 
and I've spent a lot of time working in Church of England schools and I'm not entirely sure what the Church of England part of Church of England schools means anymore. Mm -hmm. you know, um, Catholic schools, Roman Catholic schools are fantastic in that they, see, they tend to put faith into everything they do, even down to recruiting, um, trying to get teachers who are maybe not necessarily Catholic, but understand and respect the faith. Mm -hmm. Church of England schools, I found that, you know, the religious stuff is, yeah, let's let that, maybe let the RE teacher worry about that stuff and we'll do all the academic stuff. And when the Simons inspector comes in, we'll all talk about our three core values, whatever mm -hmm. faith, hope, service, whatever three words we've picked, and it'll be all great and we'll get the ticks that we need. But there is no faith there, not, not whatsoever, usually. And that depresses the hell out of me. And that's something that I want to help change. I think the Church of England's got a long way to go on that front. Some, some schools are doing great, don't get me wrong, it's not all of them, but the majority of Church of England schools are just secular schools. Uh, they, they don't even call themselves faith schools. Uh, they'd be embarrassed to use that word. Um, there, there's no faith in the Church of England schools. Mm, unfortunately, I've seen something similar myself. Um, is there any persons then more positively that have been especially inspirational for you in your own life that you'd care to tell us about? Yeah, I think the most inspirational person in my life is my mother, bless her. Um, she's the reason I'm a conservative. I, I come from a single parent household. Um, my mother had two jobs pretty much all the way through my childhood. She was a teacher and she always used to work like in a pub or a play group or she did so many different things uh, just to put bread on the table for me and my sister. And like, she's always looked out for us. She always made sure that, you know, we were fed and clothed well and I have so much respect for her. I think I got my work ethic from her. I'm always looking to be productive. I can never be idle. And that's because of her. But where we grew up in the Midlands, um, a lot of people around us didn't necessarily have the same work ethic as my mum. And I could see the contrast there. I could see that, you know, people were better off staying at home, doing nothing, living on benefits. And that's not their fault. That to me, that shows that the system doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You know, the welfare state should be a safety net for people that need it to protect the vulnerable. It shouldn't be the default option. And when you're better off doing nothing than getting out and contributing to society, something is wrong with the system in my eyes. And that's the reason I became a conservative. I figured, you know, I believe in a hand up and not a hand out. And I think that that's, that's the Tory message. I know people have lots of different opinions about that and that's fine. But I just think that the socialist method is, I think that their route to power is through control and i think it is by keeping people down and keeping people dependent on them for that handout and that's that's not a place that i ever want to be i, I always want to pick myself up by my bootstraps and make the best possible um life that i can for myself and my family and i don't want to have to rely on the state for anything mm. excellent thank you calvin um so you've also worked with people who may, may not necessarily be as religious or you're right all right um, Catherine Rosing, for example, Anaya, Father and Man. Uh, why should non-Christians also be concerned to work and um, work with us in combating the new left that we see so um, prevalent today? Then, uh, first of all, I love that pair. I've worked with them quite a lot in the past. They're both fantastic. They're doing great stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's all about getting the most out of the out of what we can, right? And I think. We're almost there. So for, take, for example, Catherine Burblesing School is so good, um, academic excellence, but they're also building character. They're teaching good manners. And, you know, the kids there, when you take them on a school trip, they'll walk around in silence in a line. They'll get on the tube and they'll be looking for an opportunity to give their seat up. Like they're not just 
waiting. They're not just, uh, it's not just that they'll be told by the teacher or something. They're looking for the opportunity to be a good yeah. member of society. And I think what Catherine's doing is fantastic. You know, I've, I've helped build a school myself previously and now I'm, I'm working with um, Michaela to open their next school. But eventually what I would love to do is take that one step further and put Christ in the center of that, in the center of everything they do. Um, to build a Michaela school centered around Christ, I think that would tick every box <laughs> for me anyway. I, I understand a lot of people wouldn't uh, like that, but that's the great thing about free schools in that parents and teachers can get together and where a school is needed, they can build one uh, and do what they see fit. And, you know, I think that would be a great school. So I would love to work on that project eventually. Uh, it's, a, it's a long way off at the moment. Magnificent there. Um, I'm so glad to hear you say that there. So um, do you have any thoughts about the new neo-Marxist movement um, sort of theologies of people like James Cone from America, because I noticed within the church itself, um, they're very much in vogue, unfortunately. It seems to be a bit of a contest f over Christ in that respect. Um, and I also was wondering, where, where do you think, if you, if you are familiar with that kind of work, where do they fall most short of the gospel? And how might we um, offer a more orthodox Christian perspective then? Yeah, uh, this whole blackness in the church kind of confuses me, to be honest. I've, um, and this whole black theology, I don't understand what black theology mm -hmm. means. Surely theology is the study of God, not the study of black people. Um, skin color shouldn't really come into this at all. You know, it has nothing to do with our personality. It has nothing to do with historical events. We shouldn't be dividing ourselves based on skin color. It comes again to identity politics. So we should put Christianity first. We are Christians first. Everything else comes second. Uh, if we put our blackness first, then what are we saying? We're saying we're black first and foremost, and then Christ comes second in our life. That's worrying to me. You know, I've, I've seen people talking about the vesting prayer, you know, the, the vesting for the old. Um, make me white, O Lord. And this is talking about whiteness as in purity, as in, as in make my spirit pure, Lord. Mm -hmm. It's not talking about make me white in skin tone. And people conflate these issues and say, okay, so Christianity is racist and this is, this is whiteness in the Western church. And then you look around, and you see actually African churches, Eastern churches are all saying the same thing and not just, not just in Christian, Christianity. Um, white has been a symbol of purity for a long time in, in Islam as well. But we take it a step further. We say, okay, so in England, we've got all these white Jesuses everywhere. We need to take them down, replace them with black Jesus. First of all, Jesus wasn't black. I'm not saying he was white either, but to, to replace one piece of artwork with another purely based on, again, on the color of the skin, his identity politics, it's not, it's not centered in faith. It's not centered on the virtues of Christianity or anything. It's just virtue signaling. And that's the problem. But if you go to Africa, you'll see, black artwork of Jesus. If you go to Japan, you'll see J Japanese artwork of Jesus. We all see God in our own image because we were all made in the image of God, right? Uh, it's not a case of that's what color we think he is. It's just us representing, it's, you know, it's, it's an icon. It's, it's not a bloody portrait. Um, but I, I struggled that because, okay, if you want to make a Jesus that looked Middle Eastern, do that because that's, you know, that's where he came from. He was a Jew. If you want to make a Jewish looking Jesus, fine. But it's not important. His skin color wasn't important to him. It shouldn't be important to us. Um, so anyone that's focusing on blackness or whiteness of Christ or religion, I think is going off, off kilter. Um, someone was mentioning to me the whiteness of Eucharistic hosts recently, or I saw a tweet about it. I was like, 
So you, you're taking this to another level. You're making a point about this, aren't you? This is about you. This isn't about God. Uh, I mean, that's I mean that's probably very judgmental of me. And there we go. We all fall into into these patterns. But I think we always need to take a step back and say, is this about me, or is this about my faith, or is this about God? And quite often, more than not, it's about ourselves. Yeah. It's filtering into every aspect of our lives <laughs> at the moment. I think um, people that I find more orthodox and have what I have seen taught in schools a little bit include um, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, some persons that you have mentioned previously from the curriculum like Rosa Parks and Dr. King who we mentioned before. Um, so do you know much about those figures? I'm sure you do from your experience of teaching and everything else. And how might they best fit within a broader, more conservative Christian curriculum? I'd also add not just people who have black skin, or that, like John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and people like that to that, to that history, if you want to uh, call it that. What do you think? Yeah, about? I think, you know, when we teach history in schools, we teach historical events that have occurred. And in our schools, we teach British history, European history, and world history. Um, we again, it's the thing we don't separate based on skin colour. If we do that, it's, it's false. And we'll end up overcompensating like they do in America. Um, you know, I think if we focus on race, then it's okay, so why the black race? Why aren't we focusing on Asian people? Or, you know, you've got the 1619 project in America. What, why is it focused on African-Americans and not Native Americans? Uh, who decides which race is at, the, is at the forefront of what we're doing? Well, current events clearly do. Black Lives Matter is what's deciding it. It's a reactionary thing. And that's not how the curriculum should be designed. It should be subject matter experts deciding what's the best that has been, putting it together, and making sure it's critiqued, it's challenged, and then delivering it. Uh, the moment we let society democratize our curriculum, you know, we might as well just let the kids learn whatever they want to learn because they don't know what they don't know. We do, we're the experts, that's the job of the teacher. Yeah, marvelous. What do you think then, um, like, I guess it's kind of obvious at this stage, that Dr. King, for example, uh, would have made of the idea of black history rather than this more inclusive Christian or conservative history? And um, the kind of emphasis on their blackness, ignoring the Christian character and beliefs, considering his actual quote about the uh, content of your character, not the color of your skin. Do you think um, this is a big problem as it plays out even with Black History Month, for example? So even in primary schools, I'm used to teaching this the way it's taught. So you have Dr. King taught alongside other people just because they have the same skin color, you know, even Malcolm X and people like that together. And um, obviously there's completely different characters, completely different beliefs and everything. And it does seem to contradict exactly what you just said about history as it should probably be properly be taught. Yeah, I think, I don't know what Dr. Martin Luther King would say if he was around today. I think he'd probably be upset at what Black Lives Matter are doing, but it's the problem is the cognitive dissonance there because they again they think they're doing something right they're very misguided in what they're doing so it's kind of just trying to open their eyes and say you know what there are issues with race around the world we've got lots of slavery still going on today you know in north korea um iran afghanistan south sudan pakistan cambodia get, go focus on those places help spread human rights and christian values around the world um fix real injustices don't try and see injustices where they don't exist and again it comes down to the lens that you look through uh, to see the world and if you see that if you're constantly looking for racism i'm sure you'll find it just as you, if you're constantly looking to be offended you will be you'll find offense um where if you go around looking for greatness you'll find that too but of course there are still elements of racism there are still things we need to improve so if you really want to change the world and make it a better place go there
fix all of them. And I think that's probably what Dr. Martin Luther King and people like him would say if they were around today. You know, fight slavery where it exists. So you mentioned the 1619 project in the States there. You've also talked about the decolonizing the curriculum. So I watched a, a talk you did with Anaya and a few others there uh, on the Equiano project. Hmm. And um, we see this broader attempt to rewrite history according to the new dogmas of uh, neo-Marxism or critical theory or critical race theory, whichever um, denomination you want to talk about specifically. From a Christian point of view, um, then should we say that there's any merit for more alternative historical markers to be commemorated alongside or in place of the more traditional British ones? So in Amer I'll use the American context, um, so you could, you could focus on, if you didn't want to do 1619, you could choose a different date and do that alongside 1776 that maybe wasn't on the curriculum before. Is there some semblance of that in Britain that you do think uh, there is a place for? Uh, there's, is there anything missing or is it already inclusive enough? So the problem is we don't actually know. Uh, we don't know what's being taught in schools across the UK. I'm going to be doing some research into this and finding out what is being taught. And then we can, we can look at what the issues are, look where the gaps are and try to plug them. Because I'm sure there are gaps. But I think we need to have less emphasis on figures. So we, we, we always talk about Mary Seacole, Rosa Parks, you know, these, these people, quite influential, but there's so much emphasis on them. We need yeah. to go back to events. That's what history is all about. And if you want to focus on uh, individuals, focus on Christ, focus on the saints. Uh, you know, I teach computer science. I, I teach about St. Isidore of Seville when I'm talking about e-safety and, you know, being the patron saint of the internet and what's appropriate to look at online and what's not. We can use characters like that if we really want to focus on individuals, but it's, there's too much focus on icons, I think, uh, in our education system. And people put people on pedestals only to destroy them and pull them back down again uh, when the tide shifts. So I think we need to move away from that. Yeah, marvellous. In that day, talk on the Equiano project, I believe you mentioned some um, computer scientists or something, if I recall correctly, who's been a, an inspiration. And this is someone that kids in Britain in our 21st century economy should be seeking to replicate. I wonder if you want to tell us about that. Oh, Tim Berners-Lee, so the inventor of the World Wide Web. Um, British guy, invented the World Wide Web, which we all use every day in our browsers, you know, pretty much what we see as the internet. Uh, hardly celebrated. He had a key role in the London 2012 Olympics, but hardly celebrated. He didn't become a millionaire. He just put this work out there for the good of mankind and we all take advantage of it. And that's something to be celebrated because it's British, it's part of us. Again, it's something we can all get behind, but he's a white guy, so maybe they won't appreciate it. Um, and on, on that, I think, you know, we always hear from, or I always hear from them that, oh, but I don't see people looking like me on the curriculum. And I'm thinking, well, this is a white majority country that has been white majority for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Of course, most people in British history are going to be white, but that's not to say that this is a racist country. If it was racist, it would be holding you back and stopping you, but it's not. In this country, you can become anything you want to become if you, put your, you work hard enough and put your mind to it. And then if you, if you sit there and say, well, I don't see anyone like me, I'm not gonna bother, or I can't make it, flip that around and say, actually, I don't see anyone that looks like me. I'm going to be that person for everyone else. And I'm going to be a role model and stand out. So when the next generation looks in the history books, they'll see me and they'll think, okay, I can be that. And that's the way we need to look at life. I think we've got to get rid of this victimhood mentality. And I'm not blaming people. You know, the reason they have victimhood mentalities is because the schools have been saying, you are oppressed. You know, the, the white money is oppressing you. Oh, it's so tough for you. Uh, you know, 
you've got all these limitations on you because you're black, you be careful around the police and all these things. But instead of saying, you know what, you're lucky to be in Britain, you're lucky to be in the United Kingdom of all places in the world, because here you can make a success of yourself, you can become anything you want to be, you can be the first Asian prime minister if you want to, the first black prime minister, whatever. Um, you know, opportunities are open to you because we have equal opportunities, we have meritocracy, and it's not perfect. There's a long way to go. There are still areas, like I say, where, where your race does have an element to play, but it doesn't, it's not the core of everything here. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, so we always previously mentioned people like Anaya and Catherine, and more secularist people. You could add Coleman Hughes, Tom Sowell, McWhorter, Jason Riley, any of those people alongside them who um, aren't distinctly Christian. Uh, what would be some of the main convergences that we should be working on together to um, resist the monopoly of the new left dominating the narrative and implementing different legislation? I, I find myself, um, their use of data is always uh, very high quality and um, there's obviously a certain emphasis on the tools of logic, which is also central to our Christian tradition. Um, do you have any other points of convergence that you'd like to bring up before maybe we address some limitations or potential limitations? Um, I think it's a difficult one. I think when we're talking about data, we're talking about providing evidence. It's all there. You know, if I'm talking about racism in schools, I can I can quite easily quote stats and say that you know black African kids uh, excel white kids all throughout primary and secondary school and are twice as likely to get to university. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't help because of the, the amount of cognitive dissonance there that people are like, but, 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 but no, the education system is institutionally racist. So I don't know how you challenge it with facts. We're in a post-truth age. We need to kind of find another way around it. And this is a challenge that I'm constantly thinking about how to address. Um, haven't got to it yet. I do like uh, President Trump's idea of bringing patriotism back to schools. And that's another thing that Catherine does really well mm -hmm. in that they'll sing Jerusalem. They'll yeah. sing God Save the Queen. Um, and again, it's saying that it doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are, uh, you're all here in the school as a British community. And, it, and we could take that a step further and say, it doesn't matter where you came from, you know, we're all Christian and these are the things that we believe and these are the things that are important to us and this is how we're gonna make the world a better place. Mm. So it's, just, it's all about looking at the things that unite us over the things that divide us always because CRT will always try to divide and we've just gotta flip it around every single time and say, but we've got these things, these are our strengths. Excellent. Uh, unfortunately, I share your your fears too. I think um, I, I mentioned this to Anaya whenever we spoke. I, try, I tried to basically communicate why I'd be so skeptical of the potential for success with what we might call liberals, even people like Soul, who's barely ever read any of these woke people because precisely because he does undermine the dogma. As you say, it's, it's about a mythic core that Kolokoski, the Polish Catholic philosopher talks about, and he knew Marxism from the inside, having grown up in Poland under the Soviet Union. And um, I, I don't see the potential for a long-term solution, even James Lindsay, people like that. And um, it seems to be that you would need to combat this with the meta-narrative and the, de the definition of humanism that uh, and I articulated I don't find sustainable if you adopt a philosophical naturalism because then which humanism, you know, why one over the other? It's a purely utilitarian choice, I would suggest. And um, then how, you, how do you define the, the length of the game? So are you going to play for just your own ego, egoistic gains 
they're going to play like an iterated game that Peterson talks about for generations. And um, I don't have to see a moral binding vision that's sustainable outside of Judeo-Christianity. Um, has only talked about this too uh, in a recent article and I believe showed quite well how the li more liberal people are kind of easy prey for Marxism because a lot of the assumptions that they have are kind of tenuous because for, it's obviously really complicated but I think that a lot of the ideas that they assume come from the Enlightenment are already there in the Middle Ages and they arose specifically within the Judeo-Christian context for a reason and that it was to do with the separation of the king and the church as it manifested itself in Western Europe in particular and maybe to a lesser extent it's slightly different in Byzantium in the East because of the, the Orthodox play was kind of different from how it manifested with Catholics and so on. I was wondering, did you have any thoughts about that or? Um... Yeah, so I think for me, I mean, you mentioned the Enlightenment, and I think that is part of the downfall of, of Western society. I know it's a controversial stance, but I think, you know, I'm quite libertarian in some ways. And like I said earlier, I believe people should have the right to live their lives however they see fit. Yeah. I, I happen to think a Christian way of life is a better life to live and would make the world a better place. But I'm not here to be authoritarian and say that's what you must do. But when I see individualism that came from enlightenment, I see a natural selfishness, um, a, you know, putting the individual at the center of, of the universe, at the center of everyone's lives. And that's what, what's led us to this secular society that we're in today. I think we needed to reemphasize service to the community, to each other, and, and put that above self. And that's, you know, comes back to the love thy neighbor. I think we, we've forgotten about that because we're too busy loving ourselves uh i don't know again it's another challenge that we need to somehow overcome but i think rod rare you mentioned earlier his book the benedict option was i absolutely loved it i think the idea of living your life and shining as a light but has a as a separate community that is a tra an attractive offer to, for people that are sick of this and i think people are sick of this i mentioned you know people are latching onto things and cults and whatever people are yearning and they're searching and they don't know where to look and part of the problem here is the church that the church is always chasing rather than trying to stand still and let people come to it. Mm -hmm. I get that with mission and evangelism, you have to go to the people and meet them where they are. But at the same time, you have to be, you know, that moral absolution. You have to be that, that safe place for them to come to uh, when they're looking for you. And we forget that, you know, the church has gone as woke as anyone else in, in society. It's, it's uh, a public institution at this point. The way that the, the established church treated the faithful during lockdown and and uh, we flew i will i, I struggle um you know i talked a lot about forgiveness earlier but i struggle a lot with that one <laughs> because we let them down the church let people down uh, when they needed the church the most um you know we we closed our churches uh not just to the congregations but to the, to the priests who were who you know the churches have been open for centuries and parish the whole point of a parochial system is that everyone the cure of souls everyone is being prayed for all the time and mm -hmm. to deny that and to deny access to the priests as well as denying the sacraments because of course the sacraments are important these days is all I, I struggle with every part of that yeah. um uh, as someone that's entering you know entering the churches <laughs> it's a constant battle but i just think that we have to re-emphasize the importance of these things uh, especially sacra uh, sacramental worship and, and the eucharistic worship uh, of our faith and bring that back to all aspects of life so as teachers we can bring that back and you know center our schools around the eucharist um, every day, not just once a term. Uh, we'll do, we'll do what we can to fight back. 
uh, whether it's the Benedict option and setting up communities um, that are attractive options or being in the community, but living a, Benedict a Benediction life, um, living a good Christian life that people stop and think, what is that person about? What are they doing? That's, that's, I like that. Um, all of these things, they are how we fight back uh, passively, but also quite actively as well. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, I think there's a couple of things there. So you mentioned that we love thy neighbor. I think part of the problem is that uh, in the Enlightenment, there was a certain turn or even with people like Auguste Comte and um, the positive positivist mentality became this more abstract love of humanity, which is a complete nonsense and ignores, as Roger Scruton and people would talk about, the kind of intermediary institutions that we actually live in as incarnate creatures. And um, I think that's part of what it goes in line with what you said about where it went wrong. And uh, that obviously ties in with the individualism thing too. Um, also, that's the pursuit of happiness, isn't it, over the pursuit of holiness? That's the downfall. What you, happiness is a state of mind. You know, you might be happy for a period of time and it might be very superficial. It might not be, you know, very uh, fruitful for you. But if you're chasing holiness, you strive towards holiness, you're always aiming towards a better life for you and everyone around you. And again, it's, it's, it's very, very liberal, very modern, very progressive. But it, I think it's harmful to our society to be constantly looking to be happy, <laughs> as odd as, as that sounds. <laughs> Yeah, and then again, it goes back to that sort of problem of authority. Who's going to define what happiness is? Um, Bishop Barron did a really good uh, lecture the other day talking about the role of people and the ideas of people from Nietzsche to Foucault and all these different thinkers who have created the framework within which we think. And whenever we do define things like happiness, we're using post-Christian, anti-Christian more properly, um, definitions of what the good life is. And we've no sense of the common good as the Bible lays it out, and we're not even for the kingdom of God. So people, um, this is, I think this ties in with the black blackness thing too, because the measure of success for the so-called black community seems to be just to um, rise to the, the top of the establishment as it is by having enough people winning Oscars or people were so happy with Zendaya last night winning an Emmy as if this is the measure of success in life and we should spend all our time thinking about that. Is this such a kind of pathetic uh, way of life as far as I'm concerned? It's kind of sad really. I do feel a pity if that's all you have to aim for as a secular person, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, it is very much replacing one thing with another isn't it it's the same in all these identity politics things you know in in feminism it's about replacing men in power with women in power in race it's about replacing white people in power with black people in power and none of it comes down to our core faith or yeah. where we should be heading as, as a society it's always about just reaching out for the the top bit of brass yeah i think uh, that is why i liked anaya so much because of the emphasis on thomas Chatterton williams and people like that because the idea of abolishing race it's as, the, as a construct is biblical and also scientific, the, the wonderful confluence of the two and the idea that it's still, it's now becoming so central and dogmatic is insane, I think. Um, I wanted to ask you too about conservatism as you would define it and uh, live it out because I know that you have a more comprehensive view of conservatism than just the Tory party who 
I think we could both say in many ways they fall into many of these traps and we might call them more liberal or even leftists in a lot of cases. Um, what would differentiate true conservatism as you'd understand it from the, the more mainstream view? Yeah, I think family comes to the core of everything, conservatism. I, I think, honestly, that's what Thatcher was talking about when she talked about the individual. I just think it got bastardized through time and I think people take it as she's saying that the individual is the most important thing, similar to the Enlightenment, when she was talking often about the individual as part of a community, as part of society. And she's often misquoted in that, in that quote where she says, um, she, she mentions there is no society. And she's saying there is no society without the individual because we will contribute to it. Um, civil liberties, absolutely, a uh, very conservative thing, which again, at the moment, I'm not sure the Conservative Party believes in. Uh, conserving beauty is one of the core ones. Um, I think beauty helps in worship, absolutely helps direct our gaze toward God. But it's an intangible thing that's difficult to measure. And as we, you know, I think the Conservative Party is very liberal in that sense. They, they deregulate everything to the point that you can build whatever you want. And, you know, these massive glass and metal skyscrapers <laughs> replacing what was, you know, once a idyllic countryside and or some really beautiful ancient architecture. We don't think about our surroundings in the same way as we used to do. I think the last time we really took care about building nice, uh, beautiful surroundings was the Victorian area. Uh, so we've, we've swayed a long way from there. We need to head back to towards protecting beauty and civil society. Again, it comes back to manners and everything comes back to community, doesn't it? And loving thy neighbour and just... London is, is a toxic place. I've lived in London for... 15 years now and every time I leave I mean I love London it's beautiful there's great things about London but every time I leave I'm reminded of how great people can be to each other mm -hmm. how civil people can be because we forget here because we're always so busy everyone's living these you know they're in the rat race and whatever and we forget about the society they're a part of and, and being a, an active member of that society in that community and freedoms I think protecting freedoms um, the free, freedom freedom of faith is a conservative value we were the you know the party that said uh, it doesn't matter which denomination you are uh, or which religion you are, that's fine. Uh, and I think that's an important value to protect because not every country has that. Mm -hmm. I think um, that from my perspective as a fellow teacher, the regarding community, I think the state control of education is one of the central problems. So as you mentioned, even in our supposedly Christian schools, they're being brainwashed, I would suggest, into the secularist de facto religion. Whereas America seems to, thank God, to have a, a surprisingly good classical education system with a lot of potential, but it seems in many cases it's far removed from more urban communities or where a lot of African-American children are, for example. So in Britain, we have rare places like Michaela that you mentioned, which are doing something different, but... Um, there's nothing explicitly Christian so far, so I'm glad to hear that you are uh, moving in that direction. That's amazing. Do you think um, that there's a way, that, a sustainable way, that some of these models of classical education or things like Michaela can be made um, for Christians specifically? So obviously you have that intention, and um, I would love to support something like that myself personally. But it's, I guess it's kind of hard for people whenever we're being heavily taxed and uh, often to taxed, taxed to, to in support of things that we completely disagree with morally and everything else. And then people are like, oh, we're, we're, we don't have enough money. And you mentioned that a lot of people are kind of um, 
the way the society has progressed, kind of reliant on the um, welfare state, and there isn't that same sense of um, we can do it ourselves that, that America has, I would suggest. I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, they are a lot better at that in America. They, they support um, success over there. And we tend to, we love an underdog in Great Britain, but the moment someone becomes successful, we're, we're waiting to see them fail, unfortunately. It's a cultural characteristic of ours. So we could probably bin that for a starter. But a lot of this, I think, would come down to us just standing up for our beliefs um, and not being ashamed of that and just sticking our head above the parapet. And, you know, if we take abuse for it, we take abuse for it. But that's, that's what the good book says we should do. Uh, I, look, I look around and it would help if our leaders would do that as well. Uh, again, I was disappointed over lockdown. I think there was a good 14, 15 bishops st stood up to say, you know, to denounce Dominic Cummings as, as a bad guy for whatever he did, seeing his family, whatever. I don't think it was anything particularly evil. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it was legal or not is another matter, but not something I'd expect to see my, my bishops talking about. But I didn't see any of them talking about these liberal abortion laws. In fact, the most liberal abortion laws in Europe that were just uh, shoved into place, forced into place in Northern Ireland while their democracy is not functioning properly. Where were the bishops then? Where's our Christian leadership standing up for our faith and our values mm -hmm. when we need them to? So if they're not going to do it, we have to do it as, as the grassroots, as the, as the faithful congregations. We have to say, look, we believe in these things. We don't believe in these things. Um, we don't want sex education pushed onto primary schools. We don't want the most liberal abortion laws in, in the world or in Europe uh, pushed onto our nation. And we've got to make our voices heard. This, the silent majority has to become vocal. We can't leave it to other people to do anymore because uh, we've seen what happens. We, our, our society is in a mess. Excellent. Uh, this seems to be something, again, that Douglas Murray is pushing and very forthrightly. And um, his more calm demeanor is changed. He's getting really fed up with it. And I hope that's reflective of how people are feeling because how long can you go on with being told uh, your whole history is awful and uh, you should be ashamed of yourself, you're just an oppressor? And it's, uh, how can people go about that and be happy and, and actually want to live in a society like that? You see on um, the Emmys again last night, sorry about all these pop culture references, but uh, Jimmy Kimmel, standing there being berated for his whiteness and um, this is meant to be comedy it's just like again it's so pathetic that a uh, i don't understand how people can go for that does it a vision worth getting out of bed for in the morning if that makes sense yeah <laughs> what, what is this comedy I don't, I don't find it funny it's not satirical it's not it's not even parody it's just the same mainstream metropolitan liberal elites with their woke agenda it's like oh yeah white people are bad yeah, but everyone's saying that. I don't understand how that's supposed to be humorous. If you want to be funny, make a joke about white people being good. I don't know, twist it around for a bit. Comedians used to be edgy. They used to you know, push boundaries. They're afraid. Everyone's afraid. No one wants to step over the mark and be seen as a racist or as a xenophobe or a, all, the, all the other transphobes and all those things. that Everyone's a phobe or an ism these days just for having a normal opinion. It's, it's terrible. That's how they shut you up, though. That's the whole thing. That's what Black Lives Matter is. You know, it's, we are the anti-racists because who wants to say I'm not one of them? Because it makes you look like you're a racist, and that's why I'm that's why I'm standing up because I'm brown. So hopefully they won't say it as much to me as they would to a white person. But in all these things, we just need more people to stand up. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I um again, it's it's that control and manipulate manipulation of language, which is kind of part design for the new left that they wanted to come in and 
um, decenter the old categories and recenter their new categories and uh, seize power because they have that ideology where everything's about power, I guess. And uh, again, we're kind of put to shame by the, one of the only comedians that really spoke out was Ricky Gervais, who again, like a kind of militant atheist, and he's the one calling this nonsense out. And it's kind of, I wish more Christians would do that. Um, so just to continue with our point about the community, I was thinking about uh, the virtue of people, Christians or others, moving to the country and acquiring land. It seems to be something that Kanye has uh, been big on recently, sounding almost like Roger Scruton in Britain, a wonderful philosopher. And uh, whenever one watches his interviews about his life in Wyoming, he talks about what is actually important in life. And he seems to think that a more rural, family-focused life away from the nanny state would be beneficial for the so-called black community. Um, do you think this would be a good direction? I guess you mentioned this earlier with the Benedict option. Do you think this would be a good direction for Christians, especially black Christians, say, in urban communities, to go in now whenever it is in any way feasible? Obviously, we mentioned some people are, are kind of beholden to the, the welfare state and they don't have enough money, I guess, to relocate. But it's going to be very difficult. So um, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, and I think we've seen some of this. So during well, after lockdown, people haven't really returned to work in the city. People have stopped commuting in to London and places like that, because mm -hmm. why? You know, it was a necessity. It was an evil that they had to do every day. It was a, it was horrible things to do that they had to get through it. And now they, they realise they don't have to. They can work from home. They can spend more time with their family. They can put different priorities in their lives. And I think people are addressing it. And I think I would love to do that. I'd love to go somewhere very urban, away from all this metropolitan rubbish, live a life, you know, raise a family, um, go to my local parish church, go to the local pub with the local community and just be a part of that, that normal everyday life. But at the same time, all of this is happening and we are seeing legislation being put in place that is being forced upon us to change the way, not just the way we live our lives, but the way we think, the words we use, all of this is being legislated at the moment. It's very dangerous. So at the same time, as much as beautiful as that would be, I think some of us need to stay back and fight. We need to, we need to say this is not okay. The majority of the country isn't in line with this. Um, and we need to make sure, again, stop being the silent majority. We need to make sure our voices are heard. So that's why I, I can't do it yet. But I would love to one day retire somewhere uh, away from all of this nonsense and just live a good life. Yeah, excellent. I think you uh, sort of struck the perfect balance. Well, both there and earlier on, there, there is that um, in the world, but not of it, I guess. Um, so regarding like, Christian diversity specifically, how does this differ from this diversity by mandate that we're more used to from legislation and um, CRT? Maybe even well-intentioned, but uh, more harmful initiatives like affirmative action in the States and similar initiatives elsewhere. Uh well, I think the problem with diversity is what does it mean? It, mean? it means broadening your horizons, essentially, doesn't it? And I would love to see more diversity of thought and opinion across the media. That would be great to see, you know, more working class people, more people that didn't go to Eton, um, more people from the right of politics. That would be great. But in the church, we need more diversity as well. But even the church is getting it wrong and looking at the superficial aspects. Like, we need more black faces. Let's promote a black person quickly. It looks good. Um, and that's not necessarily what we need. What, I would love to see more faithful people. I'd love to see more theologians being uh, promoted to bishops. Um, 
-hmm. people who have an emphasis on Eucharistic worship and put our faith at the forefront of everything, less managerial types, um, less tick boxes. So yeah, please, more diversity in the church uh, as well as everywhere else, but not based on the way we look. Marvellous. Yeah. Um, just to go back to a previous point, should black uh, Christians be concerned with the attack on the so-called nuclear family that we um, sort of referenced earlier on and Black Lives Matter's more Marxist goal to bring the state to, in to intrude upon family affairs? Because this is something um, that my, well, my fiance's family or that generation, like the older persons are more conservative, obviously Africans are very Christian, very conservative. And um, there's such a, a great divide between them and the youth in Britain uh, who have kind of imbibed this wokeness, partly because I guess they've been brought up in these woke schools over here. And um, they don't know the, the dangers of this from history. There isn't the knowledge of the old Marxism and how that mm. it played out actually in Russia and well, everywhere it's been tried really. And um, the kind of attack on the Gulags and the Gulag, um, as Solzhenitsyn writes about the Gulags and the Gulag Archipelago. And uh, do you think, do you have any thoughts about that sort of um, friction within the so-called black community or Christian community more generally? Yeah, I think this is an issue that affects the black communities more than most other communities, but it affects all of them. And it, again, it is that, you know, families at the forefront of everything and it underpins our society. 70% you know, of young offenders come from broken homes. Um, you're much more likely to succeed throughout school, throughout the whole of education, if you're in a stable family unit. And that's not, that's not me prescribing it needs to be one man, one woman, or anything in particular, but just having a stable family unit um, helps. And we know this, we've known this for decades, we've known this for centuries, but it's something that we're not talking about anymore. It's something that the government is afraid to address because it doesn't want to be seen as homophobic. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so problematic. I mean, you, you, as a Christian, we could stand there and say that this, this particular family model works. But I think first and foremost, we need to say a family model works. Uh, and we need to join up with other communities and say, you know what, we need to do this. We need to get family back at the forefront of society. We need to say that we need to show them the stats. Look, kids, these are kids from stable homes. These are kids from broken families. And it's not ostracizing single mothers. It's not saying that, that you're a bad person because you're a single mother. It's saying that we want to help you not getting to that state in the first place. We want to help families stay together. We want to encourage healthy, strong relationships. Uh, and that comes down to what we teach in schools with relationship, health and sex education. It comes down to the pushing more moral values rather than just showing young kids how to have sex. It's about talking to them about what sex is, why it's, why it's so special and why, and when you're supposed to, when it's a good time to have it and when it's not necessarily a good time to have it. Uh, and not being afraid of having these conversations. I think Christians in, in general, we're kind of, we shy around the topic of sex. Uh, we always have traditionally, and that's to our own detriment because we've let other, other people lead that conversation. And now we live in a degenerate society where sex is a commodity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's no longer anything special. It's no longer about love or marriage or union. It's just people, again, seeking personal happiness, that temporary happiness um, that is completely superficial, fake and unfulfilling. Yeah, again, I think that goes back to our uh, points before about this, the, the need for the sacraments and the sacrament of marriage. And this is a sign of the kingdom. And what loftier vision could man possibly have than this wonderful vision of coming together 
to, forever to, with your partner. It's such a, a marvelous thing. And um, even Roger Scruton uh, has written a wonderful book too about uh, sexuality and going beyond the kind of objectification, the degenerate elements that you talk about and how we should um, actually grow to love the subject. And it's such a, a, a more interesting vision than anything that's kind of trash that's out there. I, I don't know. So I haven't read that one yet, but I'll, I'll make a note too. I love yeah, reading Scruton. One of, it's, yeah, it's really one good. Best. Um, I also wanted to ask you about then another kind of sexual perversion. So um, the trans issue, this main main field that everybody seems to be well tripping on. If they if they go onto the main field, tripping on like J.K. Rowling. It's obviously um, they're trying to cancel her, calling her transphobe and everything. Which is this is something which is obviously not part of biblical Christianity, which has clear categories of man and woman, but yet the legislation now is moving in the direction of, of um, trans activists' desires. So if this is a problem articulated by Nancy Pearcy in her book, Love Thy Body too, which um, again has a lovely vision of Christian sexuality. So she mentions how, if we can't define what a woman is, for example, we can't have women's rights. If we can't define what a child is, we can't have children's rights. So then you see the examples that you mentioned earlier, cuties, but much worse elsewhere and much worse to come, surely. Um, and this is where we more libertarian or conservative people are kind of running up against the state because that's obviously playing out, playing out in our schools. We're, we're being forced by mandate to celebrate, not just tolerate, but celebrate these things and um, act as if this is not at odds with our faith. I was wondering, did you have any thoughts about that from the Christian perspective and also even from the distinction between the trans and the um, more feminist types who are now being called TERFs and so on? Yeah, uh, I think, so the law, first of all, credit where it's due to the conservatives, they haven't gone through with that, that law. Um, they've prevented it, so people can't self-designate and people won't be able to change their birth certificate, all that madness that we're asking for. <laughs> but I should, I should clarify, again, I've got no problem with people identifying however the hell they like. What I have a problem with is them pushing those views onto me and saying, I must use different language. I must think differently. Um, you know, it's, even down to faith, you're not allowed to have a faith anymore if it contradicts the, the, the woke faith. If your faith says that, you know, there's, such, there's only two genders, then you are, what's the, what's the phobe? Transphobe. Um, which is, it baffles me because you can be arrested for that. It's a hate crime now, especially in Scotland. We're heading the same way here with uh, hate crimes are ridiculous anyway. It's, it's hate speech, isn't it? You know, they're policing your thoughts and you're do, they're doing that through your words. Um, but we, again, we're seeing the erasure of women as well. We're seeing that, like you mentioned, women's rights are no longer a thing because trans women are women. And therefore we're letting biological men into women's spaces where women have, you know, women have fought for centuries to get protections to get equal equal rights and now those rights are being erased because the whole gender is being wiped out and it's not affecting men uh, or men not so much because it's the men that are allowed in female sports uh competing on levels that you know men are physically men's physical prowess is stronger than a woman's generally speaking and even to say that is transphobic these days it's how dare you but it's a biological fact uh so we're seeing you know men entering women's or trans women entering women's sports uh, and ruining them but we're also seeing them into safe spaces like change rooms 
the problem that I have is in schools in particular, you know, boys in girls changing rooms is an issue for a whole host of safeguarding concerns around that. Um, and we need to just not allow it. We just not, not let it happen. If that means having, you know, more toilet options, fine, but we can't just get rid of girls' safety nets. We can't just push boys into them. And what we've seen around the country is that schools that have done this and said, you know, all bathrooms are universal now, kids have just gone back to it themselves and said, actually, you know, us boys will go in this one, you girls will go in that one, because they don't want it. And we can't push, the, we can't push rather these ideologies onto kids, because uh, kids see through it. They're not woke-like adults. Mm-hmm. So I have a whole host of issues with this conversation, but it, again, it's, it's not me hating on anyone. I, I love people. I want people to live the best lives they possibly can. But it's just this dogma that they're pushing through our society. And I don't get why the conservative government of all governments are allowing it. And like I say, credit where it's due, they've stopped some of this. But I don't think they're listening. The majority of the country, again, the silent majority who needs to speak up more, don't fall in line with these views. Even, you know, I think the majority of people are probably small C uh, Christian. Um, you know, most people in this country st- would still say they're Anglican or Church of England, even if they don't go to church, and they still hold small C conservative values. Um, whether they're faithful or not, it doesn't matter. But th- what I'm what I'm saying is, pe- most people wouldn't fall in line with these woke agendas. But everyone's in this London bubble, this Westminster bubble, and they see the world through a different perspective. Much like the Black Lives Matter people see racism everywhere, politicians tend to see wokeness everywhere, and they want to be they want to outwork each other, but you can never outwork each other because the moment you step out of line, you will get cancelled, as J.K. Rowling has been. She was massively liberal. Uh, she was one of the most woke celebrities for the longest time. Mm-hmm. And she spoke out against one issue and now she's cancelled. People are literally burning her books. That's, we're in burning book territory now. How sad is that? Yeah, you know, say one thing wrong, that's it. Like I said earlier, there's no forgiveness. You're gone. You're history now. You're erased. Mm-hmm. You're sent to the gulags, essentially. I think... Um... Abigail Schreier, too, bringing the two points together, has written about and spoken about the the role of tr- trans ideology in schools and how it is becoming younger all the time. These kids are being allowed um, to like give, fill their bodies full of hormones and all sorts and do irreparable damage at a very young age. And um, this isn't it? You know, they're, they're giving children puberty blockers. These kids are not growing they're stopping kids from growing into adults that is abuse there's no way around it and how are we allowing this to happen by law uh, you know there's so many things that kids aren't allowed to do because it's for their own good uh, that these things we're not just giving them the options we're presenting the options to them you know like this relationship sex health education acts whatever it's called we're, we're showing them options and say actually maybe you're in the wrong body now uh, maybe you want to take some tablets to prevent yourself from getting a you know from growing into a boy <laughs> this is something um i guess that there's another point of convergence so a lot of these people again i don't think abigail schreier is particularly religious for example and um deborah so likewise who are affirming the reality of the sexes and um resisting this emphasis on a trans ideology especially whenever it does come to younger persons and also um i would add not just more secularist people i guess this is something that christians can learn from with the way muslim parents i think was it in birmingham they actually spoke up and um let their voices be known that they didn't want this sort of stuff being taught in schools that their kids were going to 
So uh, if only we could learn from that, uh, like people like yourself, uh, then to speak up, I think. The there are so many opportunities where we need to join with the, the Muslims in speaking out because they are the only ones, you know, they tend to be small C conservatives as well. They are the only ones speaking out against all of these issues. And, you know, what are we doing about it? Mm-hmm. We're just looking at them like, oh, aren't they a bit extreme? But <laughs> no, they're fighting for what they believe in. That you're working on at the moment that you'd like to tell us about or that you um, have the passion to get involved with in the future? Or do you want to remind us again? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm part of Don't Divide Us. I'm one of the signatories which is a group providing positive alternatives to schools and other um, sectors, We've got universities, uh, people in, who are in industry, who are getting cancelled and or getting CRT, critical race theory, pushed onto them, you know, like unconscious bias training in, in the workplace or white privilege on the curriculum, all of these things. We're trying to provide alternatives um, so that schools can address these issues and other companies and organisations can address these issues without subscribing to CRT. Um, I'm doing defund the BBC because I want I want to pl- apply pressure onto the government to take action and stop the BBC being so woke and pushing these social justice warrior uh, issues down our throats at every option they get. Um, I'm working with Lawrence Fox on a new project. Keep your eyes open for that. Another good Christian there. Um, yeah, just watch the space for that one. And obviously, I'm entering the church now, so I'm going to try and keep my head down and probably not talk about too many controversial controversial issues at a time fight one battle at a time i think i'll try and do but if more people could stand up and do it that'd be fantastic yeah marvelous and thank you for a shining the the lights on these awful issues and i really appreciate your witness from a christian perspective god bless you thank you for having me on god bless you too